0: We're going to read together Psalm 42 and, and Psalm 43 for reasons that might become clear. You'll see that they really fit together, they belong together. Psalms 42 and 43. And what we're seeing here is a man thousands of years ago holding fast to the anchor of the truth, holding fast to the anchor of the Lord in the midst of a personal storm. The a superscript at the top, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, and Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food, day and night. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray together for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the honesty of your word, as it describes life as it really is and not life as maybe we might want it to be now. And we pray that as we look at this psalm, in our own personal storms, you might give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. That was uh, the psalm we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and there are times when following Jesus does feel like that, doesn't it? All is well, life is good, and we're happy in the Lord, and rejoicing is easy. Sometimes life feels like Psalm 23, Sometimes it feels more like Psalm 42 and 43. Did you notice that Psalm 42 uh, begins similarly to Psalm 23, verse 1 of Psalm 42? Have a look. Talks about flowing streams. Not so different, is it, to the still waters of Psalm 23? But but then look down at verse 3, because by verse 3, the water is now running down down the psalmist's face. My tears have been my food day and night. And then by verse 7, the waters have become a raging torrent. Huge waves crashing down on the psalmist, tossing him about like a ragdoll, plunging him underwater, coming up, gasping for breath, before being plunged underwater again. If Psalm 23 is tranquility, Psalm 42 and 43 are turmoil. And it is so good, isn't it, that this kind of psalm is included in the Bible? Surely one of the reasons the Lord has done it is because he knows that Psalm 42 and 3 are often how the Christian life feels. It feels like we're just about keeping our heads above water, spiritually speaking, and maybe in all sorts of other ways as well. These psalms are for struggling people. And for the times when life feels more like a raging storm than a still stream. And it's written here to give us hope. So we're going to look at these two psalms really through three words. Three words and the first word is longing. Longing. And notice in Psalm 42, the psalm begins with a picture of deep longing. An unquenched thirst. A deer, verse 1, perhaps during a long, hot Middle Eastern drought, finding every riverbed dry, desperately hunting day after day for a tiny trickle of water to drink. It's the kind of thirst that gets right down deep into your bones. You can't think of anything else except finding a drink. Verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, So pants my soul for you, O God. Uh, We don't know the background to the psalm for certain. We're not given it here, but there are clues. So in verse 4, for example, uh, the psalmist remembers leading worshipers into the temple. He says, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So some people think maybe this was one of the temple musicians who used to love taking part and leading the exuberant joy of the festivals in Israel as they approach the temple. And then there's another clue there in verse 6. Look at the place names in verse 6. The river Jordan has its uh, headwaters to the far north of Israel in the Hermon mountain range, and it sounds from verse 6 as though that might be where the psalmist is. And so some people have imagined that maybe he was in some kind of exile, driven out of Jerusalem, and the temple carried off as a captive to the north. And there, as he sits by the Jordan River, as he watches the waters of the river roll by, he longs for the temple far to the south. He longs to be there again in the joyful crowd, praising and singing and celebrating as he used to do. But remember what he said in verse 1. What he longs for most of all isn't the temple, is it? It's what the temple represented. So pants my soul. For you, O oh God. And immediately I find this psalm confronts me. Don't you? Do I share his longing for the presence of the Lord? Do I long for him as a thirsty deer might long for a drink? There are lots of great things, aren't there, about being part of a church like this one, that Coming along to church on a Sunday and maybe midweek, too, it gives the week a certain rhythm. We feel like we wouldn't really know how to organize our week without it, maybe. It's great to have friends and a community to be part of in a church like this. People often comment on that. Saying the words of a familiar prayer can be very calming, can't it, when life is particularly stressful? And singing in a crowd of people can be exhilarating. All of those things are great. But what about the Lord? What about knowing him speaking with him loving him enjoying him there is a way of engaging with christianity as a system that has really nothing to do with knowing the lord personally a form of christianity without the person of christ a sort of a religion a set of religious activities that lack a close and personal relationship with the God who should be right at the heart of it. But the Christianity presented to us in the Bible isn't about a system or a set of rituals to perform. It isn't ultimately even about belonging to a community, wonderful though that is. I mean, you can get that at Parkrun, can't you? You don't even have to run. You can just volunteer and turn up. The great goal and joy of the Christian life is to know the Lord. So let me ask you, do you know him? Do you know him personally? Not do you know about him. Not are you amassing more and more information about him. That's not a bad thing. Do you know him? Do you know that that's why Jesus Christ came? So that you might know him forever. We see this same personal language all the way through the Bible, don't we? So, for example, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 writes, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, you can take away all of my religiosity. You could take all of my past achievements, all of my other reasons to boast, all the other things I enjoy. You could take away all of my standing in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of the church. Just give me Jesus. It's Jesus I want. It's knowing him that matters most to me. And this is the heart cry of the born again. And this longing shows up in at least two ways. This is what the psalm reminds us of. First, it shows up as I rejoice to know the Lord, as I rejoice in his presence. And it shows up as I grieve what I sense to be his absence. Any sense of distance between me and the Lord, anything that gets in the way of my relationship with Him. Now, this psalm was written about a thousand years before the coming of the Lord Jesus, and of course, His coming has changed all sorts of things. Now, our situation today is not exactly the same as the situation there in Psalm 42. For a start, the, the temple in the New Testament is no longer a building in Jerusalem, is it? It's first of all the risen Lord Jesus. And secondarily, it's those who are joined to him by faith, which means that every Christian is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 6. And that means that in one sense, we are never distant from the Lord, though our sense of that distance can fluctuate. In truth, the Christian can never really be distant from the Lord. He will never leave or forsake you, no matter how you feel. And yet, this side of the return of Christ, we do experience a distance, don't we? We're longing to be with him in the new creation. That is the goal, isn't it, of God's new creation work. That God takes up residence in a world transformed into a cosmic temple in which he lives, enjoying his people and his people enjoying him. We long for that day. We long to know him by sight as well as by faith. Do you long for that day? Do you long to be at home with the Lord? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. Longing. Secondly, listening, listening. And to be so far from the temple was clearly really difficult for the psalmist. And the distance from God it then represented. But there are those around him, we discover, who are sticking their fingers into his wound. So 42 verse 3, have a look. They say to me all the day long, where is your God? You can imagine their tone, mocking, taunting. Your God's ditched you. He's done with you. He's given up on you. Give up, it's over. Verse 10, have a look down with me. Verse 10 as with a deadly wound in my bones. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now remember, this has been brought on by his circumstances. And there will be circumstances in all of our lives, if we're Christians, which tempt us to believe that God has given up on us as well. Our long-term health problem that the Lord doesn't seem to want to fix, a, a bitter disappointment, an old heartbreak. Some part of my life that looks so painfully unlike the life I planned or wanted. And the temptation is to look at that part of my life and say, he clearly doesn't love me. He's clearly given up on me. It's hopeless. And just like the psalmist here, we too have an enemy ready to preach that message to us. The name Satan means accuser because that's what he loves to do. He loves to accuse, he insinuates, he lies. Jesus calls him the father of lies. He he likes to sow doubts into your mind about the love of God and his goodness. It's one of his favorite lies. Telling Christians that God doesn't care about them, he's given up on them, it's over. Do you know if God really loved you, he'd heal you? If he really cared about you, he'd he'd have given you a spouse or children, wouldn't he? If you were really going to heaven, he wouldn't have let you make that terrible mistake. Just take a moment and think what lie does Satan tell you most often? And if you're not sure how to answer that, that's understandable, maybe think about it like this. Where is the area of your life where you most struggle to feel God's love for you? What part of your life most makes you doubt it? God's care and concern and compassion, that God is for you, that's probably where Satan will attack. He wants you to despair until you give up. Now the point here is that you can't stop him telling lies, but you don't have to listen. You don't have to listen. You know those doubts that invade your mind sometimes? You know that you don't have to listen to them. You know that you don't have to believe them. You don't have to believe everything you think. You know, the anxieties that wake you up in the night, you don't have to listen to them either. You don't have to believe them. As someone else has put it, probably lots of people have put it, when it comes to God's love for you, learn to doubt your doubts. Learn to doubt your doubts. Stop listening to his accusations and lies and start to speak. That's our third word, speaking, longing, listening speaking. Notice in these two psalms, the psalmist doesn't waste his breath correcting his enemies. They probably wouldn't listen anyway. He speaks instead first to God. It's what he's doing there in 42 verse uh, 6 and 7, isn't it? Halfway through, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. That is, I'm not just going to remember happier times that make me sad and mope and tempted to pity myself. He knows I'm sure that self-pity is utterly destructive to Christian joy. Instead, I'm going to discipline myself to remember the Lord and speak to him. And what does he say in verse 7? He's very honest. Verse 7 Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. And when the Lord feels very distant, struggling faith turns to prayer. And it pours its pain out before the Lord Lord, this hurts. We can be very honest with him. I'm sure you can relate to this. I imagine you've had times like this too. I can recall a time in my life where I was really struggling. Something had gone wrong. I'd suffered a bit of disappointment, and I, I talked to a friend about it at length, and it helped a bit, but I was still being churned up. Funny, isn't it, how we can talk to friends about something long before we think to talk to the Lord about it? Why is that? Silly. And eventually I realized that I really needed to speak to him Only he could help in the end. But as I did, as I prayed, and I I was in the habit then of writing prayers down in a journal and reading back through it, I realized I was saying the sorts of things I thought I was supposed to say rather than the things I was really feeling. I wasn't really being honest. And it was only when I told the Lord what was really going on inside me that slowly he got to work. The Psalms are very honest sometimes shockingly honest, sometimes very raw. And they give us permission to be honest with the Lord ourselves as well. And you notice in his honesty here, he he asks the Lord honest questions, like the question in verse nine, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalms often do this too. They ask God questions, but notice they they ask in a particular way, not with a clenched fist, not angry, accusing, aggressive, but they ask with open hands, Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand where you are or what you're doing. Please help. So the psalmist in his struggle speaks to the Lord. We can do that too pour out our pain to him, our struggle to him. But notice the psalmist then turns and several times in 42 and 43 speaks to someone else. Who is it? It's himself. I don't know whether you think of yourself as a teacher or a preacher, but the psalmist's example here shows us that we're all supposed to be preachers and teachers. And the congregation, your daily congregation, is yourself. It's your soul, your inner person. So, at uh, three times in, verse, in uh, Psalms 42 and 43, we hear the refrain, which we first hear there in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Uh, the psalmist here is modeling one of the key disciplines of the Christian life. To listen to ourselves less, And speak to ourselves, preach to ourselves more. In his brilliantly helpful book on spiritual depression, Dr. Lloyd Jones says this. Let me read this for us. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and so on, maybe past regrets. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And what is it that he says? What does he preach to his soul? Well, notice in that refrain, first seen there in verse 5, we see a truth about God and a truth about himself. What's the truth about God? That God hasn't changed. He is still his salvation. Note the pronouns. My salvation and my God. God. He might be a long way from the temple, but the God of the temple has promised to be his. He's made a covenant with him, a covenant with his people in blood, so that whatever his circumstances say, whatever his enemies say, God can't have abandoned him. He is still his God. And the truth about God then leads to a truth about himself. And that is, he still has reason to hope. He will rejoice in God's presence. He will praise God again, no matter how terrible he feels as he speaks. One day, if not in this life, then the next, he knows that the Lord will still the storm and lead him back to the still water. You see his hope there in Psalm 43, verse 4. He gives some detail to his future hope. What is it? Verse 4, have a look with me. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. A future hope made certain by the unchanging character of God. He takes those truths and he preaches them to himself. And who knows how many times he preaches that sermon three times in these two psalms. We will probably have to do that many more times over the course of our life it is a wonderful example to follow is this something that you're in the habit of doing it will do you so much good if it is that when you feel as though your life has fallen apart God's given up on you and doesn't love you doesn't care about you do you only listen to your doubts or do you speak to them too? Do you stroke them and nurture them and feel sorry for yourself because of them? It's so tempting to do, isn't it? Or do you preach the truth to them and remind your soul of what you know to be true? When you're tempted to despair, what what kind of truth might you want to say? What kind of promise could you preach to your soul? Well, there are so many to choose from. I had trouble whittling these down, but I've chosen a few. Here's one. Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or Jeremiah 31, 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Or John ten twenty-seven to 28, words of the Lord Jesus to those who trust in him, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. All right, one more. Romans 8:38. Do you know this by heart? I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus our Lord speak these truths to your soul stop listening to yourself and start speaking take hold of the great truths of the Bible the great promises of God and preach them to yourself preach them to make Satan afraid preach them to your doubts and your fears preach them sing them when you wake up in the middle of the night Preach them until you believe them. Take your soul in hand and say with the psalmist, why are you cast down in oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray.